The reading today is Mark 8, verse 27 to 38, and it's on page 1012 in these red Bibles. One thousand and twelve. Mark eight twenty seven to thirty eight. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them about the son of them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Thanks, Joanna. Morning, everyone. Happy New Year. If I haven't seen you, I've seen some of you, but good to, good to be together. Let's pray. Then we're getting back into Mark today. Lord, uh, we come through to, to 2019, start of a new year, and I guess this week, maybe uh, many of us have been thinking about our life and the future and our hopes and expectations for this year. Our hopes for how we might change, for how life might be different. Our desires for what might come and what might lie ahead. Lord, we want to come and submit those things to you. Say, not our will, but your will be done. I want to pray for your leading and your direction so that the path that our lives follow is the path that you have set before us. Lord, please, today, would you show us, show us who, who we are, who you called us to be, what you called us to do, that we might, each of us, know what it means to follow you and so have life. Amen. Um, I wonder what it means to you to be a follower of Jesus. What difference has that made to your life this week? If you regard yourself as a follower of Jesus, how has that impacted things for you this week? 
Maybe if you're, you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus, but you're kind of here and you're interested and you're looking in. I wonder what your expectation is of what it might look like to follow Jesus in your life. It's really a question that we're going to be exploring a bit today. And we're picking up in, in Mark's Gospel again, as Joanna read for us. And we're at the halfway point of, uh, of, of Mark's story of Jesus, which we're reading, basically. Um, the kind of centre of the story. Uh, and in part one, which we looked, in, uh, looked at up to Christmas, we saw who Jesus is. Uh, and now we just take a slightly different direction in part two. And we're going to be thinking more and paying more close attention to what it looks like to follow Jesus in his way. What it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. So for those of us who are followers of Jesus through to Easter, it will be a, a kind of, a, I guess, a reminder and refresher and a, a helpful direction for our lives. And if you're not yet that, it will be an insight to you as to what it would look like to follow Jesus. And so the first thing I want us to, <clears throat> to see this morning is, is, is firstly what Jesus' way is. The Jesus way, if you like. And a kind of rem- reminder of where we got to um, just before Christmas. I know it's been a few weeks and lots has happened uh, over Christmas since then. But that's why we, we, we read actually from verse 27, which we looked at um, before Christmas. Uh, and there is this pinnacle of the story in verse 29 where, where, where Peter says to Jesus, you are the Messiah. We've been building right up to that moment. Two and a half years, these guys have been with Jesus and finally somebody actually gets it. One of his disciples sees who Jesus is. You are the Messiah. And yet, I wonder if we could... Oh yeah, thanks, Nick. Yeah, let's get those doors closed. <laughs> Just block out the screams. <laughs> Thanks. Um, Peter sees it. He says, you are the Messiah. And yet what we need to realize is yet he still doesn't quite see it clearly. The disciples still don't see it clearly. They don't get what that means or what, the, or what Jesus as the Messiah is here to do. So it's a bit like, if you, you just flip over the page, even back to um, verse 24 there of chapter 8, the, the blind man, we looked at this previously, the blind man whose vision is partly healed, So in verse 24, he kind of sees, but he kind of doesn't quite see. And so spiritually, they're partly seeing, and yet there's more work for Jesus to do, for them to see clearly. And that work actually happens over three conversations. We're going to be exploring these conversations over the coming weeks, in the next couple of chapters. And finally, we get on a page to chapter 10, verse 52. Worth looking at it quickly. And there we have another healing of a man who is blind, this time blind, blind Bartimaeus. But this time, this man is healed, and he is healed instantaneously. And his vision comes back just like that, and he sees clearly. So we're in this kind of, these next few weeks, we're in this process of vision, spiritual vision and sight coming. These two healings are like bookends, kind of acted parables of what's happening spiritually. So what is it that the disciples are yet to get? What are they not seeing? Well, it's this. It's what sort of Messiah Jesus is going to be. What the Messiah is actually here to do. And for these guys, it just turns everything upside down from their expectations. And so that's why in verse 31, there on page 1012 uh, in our text today, Jesus, it says, begins to teach them what it means for him to be the Messiah. And there are these four big surprises for them there. Firstly, he's going to suffer many things. 
Secondly, he's going to be rejected by the religious elite. Thirdly, he must be killed. And fourthly, he will rise after three days. And it's just totally not what they were expecting. Totally outside of their frame of reference. As Toby just kind of explained to the kids, Messiah to these guys, these good Jewish men, means the all-conquering, the powerful, the hero king. The one who's going to be received with fanfare and acclaim and, and adored and, and, and worshipped. And, and this makes no sense. That is not what the Messiah is. That is not who he is. But Jesus is clear. Did you see there in verse 31? He uses this very interesting word twice. Must. He says, this must happen. There's no other way. See, Jesus is here to do his Father's will. He's here to execute the plan that was made even before the creation of the world. Theologians call it the covenant of redemption. Father, Son, and Spirit together making this plan to have people as their own. People who love them and know them. People who, who, are, who are possessed by them. And, and the shocker for these guys is that the Messiah is going to be this suffering servant that they've heard about. We, 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 we hear about it ourselves from the uh, book of Isaiah. It would actually be helpful to, to, uh, to turn there if you can. It's page 741. Just keep your thumb in Mark 8, but let's go to 741. This is 700 years before Jesus comes about. This guy called Isaiah is a prophet to the nation of Israel. And he's writing about this expected suffering servant in Isaiah 53. And the shocker for these guys is that Jesus is basically saying, I'm the Messiah and I'm here and I am this suffering servant Isaiah wrote about. Isaiah 53, I'm going to read from verse 3. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Doesn't sound very Messiah-like, does it? Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds... We are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned the grave of the wicked, and with the rich in his death, they had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet listen to this. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Jesus says, I'm the Messiah, and I've come to do God's will. I've come to be crushed, to suffer. Suffer many things, be rejected, and killed. It just turns everything on its head for these guys. We kind of know the end of the story, so maybe it doesn't turn it on its head for us, but it really ought to. It doesn't end there, though, because Isaiah carries on. Uh, 
was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. You see, he hasn't just come to suffer and be rejected and die. But those things are going to be followed by him rising to new life. It's suffering now and glory later. And so so that's why, that's us in in Isaiah. So if you you do turn back to page 1012 to Mark 8, please. That's why um, Jesus starts referring to himself as the Son of Man here. We see that a couple of times in this, this passage. Uh, and this Son of Man is one of these other kind of Old Testament personalities, like the Messiah. Uh, and the Son of Man is this representative of humanity before God. Uh, and when he's described, he's described like a human, and yet he's also described like God. It's kind of like God in, in human form. And we particularly see in, in, in the book of Daniel where he has this vision of him. Uh, and Daniel says that this Son of Man is given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And so Jesus is picking up that again, that imagery of the Son of Man, and saying, yeah, this is who I am. I'm going to be all of this, and yet first I'm going to suffer. And so you see, for Jesus, there will be a victory parade. There's going to be a day of loud music. There's going to be a day of singing crowds. There's going to be a day of great joy and a great feast and a great party that's followed by a long and prosperous reign. A reign of peace and joy and life and goodness and life to the full. That is going to come. But before that comes, he's going to stumble up a lonely and a painful path. He's going to stumble up a dusty hill with a crossbeam on his back, with crowds gathering around, not to celebrate, not to, to, to worship and adore, but crowds gathering around to jeer and to insult and to spit at. He's going to be rejected. And he's going to walk up that hill and he's going to go to a shameful death, an excruciating death on a cross. And so this is the Jesus way. This is the Jesus way. He descends down before he's raised up. He goes to death before he comes through to new life. That is God's plan of salvation. That's what we've sung about this morning, isn't it? I don't know if you knew that's what you were singing about. It's exactly what we've sung about this morning. And when you think about it, and when you just try and get that in your mind for a moment, don't you think that's shocking? This is God we're talking about. That is shocking, isn't it? And clearly the disciples are shocked. And that's why Peter here, the kind of the all-action hero of the disciples, steps in. And um, it's in verse, um, verse 32. Peter steps in and, and he, he rebukes Jesus. He says, Jesus, don't talk like that. That's not going to happen to you. That's not what you're here to do. That's, that's not what the Messiah is. 
Like Toby said, you're going to come in a big club, beast the Romans, you're going to be the king, I'm going to be your mate, it's going to be, it's going to be great, Jesus. You know, like, I've got this planned out. But remember, Peter and the disciples are still not seeing clearly. And we read here that actually, Peter has put in human concerns before concerns of God. See, with human concerns, Peter's like, there must be an easier path forward for you here, Jesus. There must be an easier way to do this. There must be a way of getting victory without all of that cost. Jesus, I'm not going to let anyone be killed. I'm I'm with you, Jesus. I'm not going to let anyone kill you. Well, it sounds... It sounds good, it sounds nice, it sounds caring, it sounds like the sort of thing you might want to say, but the lack of spiritual sight that Peter shows, let's face it, that all of us have in some senses, is deadly. You see, the human way of conventional wisdom, we see here that it turns out to be nothing other than Satan's way. It's nothing other than Satan's way. So that Jesus reserves his strongest rebuke that he gives to anyone, anywhere, for Peter here. He basically calls him Satan. Get behind me, Satan. I mean, Jesus didn't have a problem with sometimes kind of saying quite strong things to people. But this is the strongest of them all. You see, the threat to the Jesus way is Satan's way. And Peter has been taken in by Satan's propaganda, but not Jesus. And Jesus isn't, because he's heard it before. Right back in the beginning, when we started Mark's story in September, we saw that Jesus was taken into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan for 40 days. And in that temptation, Satan's MO, his, his, his way that he operates, the way that he attacks was revealed. We, we see it so clearly in the temptation of, of Jesus. And it's very subtle the way that Satan comes at us, the way he came at Jesus. See, what he doesn't do is he doesn't so much kind of come and totally contradict God's plans and purposes. But he kind of tries to kind of redirect them and subvert them and and kind of gets to buy into them and, and, and think there's another way for those things. And so when he comes to Jesus in the temptation, he offers Jesus the glory that he he knows Jesus is entitled to and he deserves and he's going to have, but he offers him like a really easy way to get that. He he offers him the world and the kingdom and he says, you can have it in an instant, Jesus. You know that's what you've come for. Come Come and get it now. You can have it. He offers him the chance to seize the day and to take the shortcut to his rightful place as king over all things. He says, Jesus, you can have the glory without the cross. What the temptation of Jesus basically boils down to. All you've got to do, disobey your father and reject him. You can have it all right away. And it's so tempting. So tempting. The sweet lies of Satan. He uses, takes the truth and uses half-truth and twists it and, and, and offers imitations of the good things that God has. It's a kind of tricksy way of coming, isn't it? And here Satan is on the attack again in the middle of the gospel. It's not the last time he's going to be on the attack. We'll see as we go through. And now he's coming through the words of one of Jesus' closest friends. His, his, his closest friend giving him his advice and his counsel. No, Jesus, it doesn't need to be that way. But Jesus knows. Jesus knows this is Satan. Satan offering a detour, offering another way. A way off the path that God 
has set for him. And he will not be diverted. I'm going to ruin it because it's going to be a long time before we come to it. The time when Satan's going to come back very clearly, I think, is when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he goes to the cross. And he's there staring down the cross in holy fear and dread. I think there Satan is coming and whispering in his ear, it doesn't need to be this way. Glory about the cross, Jesus. You don't need to go through tomorrow. And this is Jesus' prayer. Mark records it for us. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup, the cross, the suffering from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. The Son of Man has come to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the Jesus way. And it's shocking. But you're going to be shocked by what comes next. And that's because there is a call on us to follow the Jesus way. A call to follow the Jesus way. <clears throat> we see it in um, <clears throat> verse 34 and following, where Jesus, um, this, what we've seen so far has been a conversation with Jesus and his disciples. Now we've got the crowds there as well, and Jesus um, addresses the crowds along with his disciples. Uh, and it's like this kind of, moment where he's ready to make his big invitation to people, his, his sales pitch, if you like, for what he has to offer them, this life to the fool. And he says to them, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up, the, take up their cross, and follow me. Sorry, what, Jesus? One thing, what you've just said about yourself... Are you actually expecting to get many followers by making that kind of invitation to people? Are you expecting anyone in the crowd to be like, yes, sign me up for that, yes, please? You see, Jesus calls disciples. He doesn't call fans or supporters or, I don't know, social media followers or whatever else. No, he calls disciples. Not converts, but disciples. Disciples are all of life followers of Jesus. That means in every area of life, following him, becoming like him. That's a lifelong calling and process and task. And discipleship according to Jesus? It's there in verse 34, if you want your definition. It says discipleship according to Jesus. Do you see what he says you must do? The must word is there again. If you want to be his disciple, what must you do? Already two things. Self-denial and sacrifice for his sake. That's discipleship. Self-denial, sacrifice for his sake. Just as there is no other way for Jesus, there's no other way for us. Yeah, we like to talk about discipleship, don't we? It's a word that kind of trips off the tongue. Maybe sometimes a little bit too easily. But listen, this is important. You need to hear me on this. This call to sacrifice and suffering. What Jesus goes on in verse 35 to say is like losing your life, he says. This is a call to do that for the sake of Jesus and his gospel. That's what he says so clearly there in verse 35. It's for the sake of Jesus and 
his gospel. There's many different sufferings that we will face in life. There's many ways that we talk about having a cross to bear. And very often when we say that, we're talking about some kind of minor inconvenience or burden in life, aren't we? It's kind of quite trivial. But listen, the path of discipleship is this. It is the willing and the daily walk to our own execution. It is death to self. The path of discipleship is the willing and daily walk to our own execution. It's a death to self. It's a living death to self. Maybe think about this question. What is it that is hard in your life because you are following Jesus? What is hard because you are following him? Listen, if you can't think of anything, even in that short amount of time, if you actually can't think of anything that's hard because you're following Jesus, then maybe you need to ask the question of whether you really are following him or just paying lip service to following him. Because this is what discipleship is. This is what following Jesus is, in its very nature. It's denying self daily. It's sacrifice for his sake. Guys, I'm quite clearly not sugarcoating this. <laughs> I think that's evident, isn't it? Maybe you feel a bit awkward as I'm talking. This is a painful and a hard reality. This is an ongoing call on our lives. It's an ongoing call on my life today. It's countercultural and it's counterpersonal, right? I mean, everything in me does not like this. You know, for me, I've, I've been kind of preparing and reflecting on this this week in this kind of New Year week. I've just been reflecting like, yeah, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is so weak. Like, in one sense, I'm like, yeah, sign me up for this. Yeah, I know the reality of my life. Do anything to avoid self-denial and suffering. I spend so much time tailoring so much of my life get, getting um, around getting the easiest possible ride I can possibly have. Listen, if our Christianity does not have space for this call, I suggest we've got a Christless Christianity. There's no diet Christianity. You can't follow Jesus, but with all the hard stuff taken out. Discipleship of Jesus is costly. And if it isn't for us, then we've missed something very big. We've missed something very, very big. And listen, let me suggest some reasons why uh, we find it so hard. Uh, and, and there's possibly many, but I think this text helpfully gives us, gives us a few. And, and the main one is this, is that Satan distracts us from following Jesus in this way too. So he's still at work in the same way that he, he was then. Just as he tried to tempt Jesus away and kind of just get him to detour slightly off the path that God had for him, the path of self-denial and suffering, following God's will. Well, so Satan wants to ease us away from that path as well. He wants to just help us to kind of just take a step off the path of costly suffering and costly discipleship. You know, his tactics have not changed since the Garden of Eden. He does it with a smooth and a, and a kind whisper in our ear. Gently whispering, not kind of just enticing us necessarily very often to outright and blatant rebellion and evil, but these subtle ideas, these easy and attractive thoughts, these natural uh, instincts and, and inclinations that we might have, he kind of taps into. We need to realize that it is terminally dangerous 
the path that that leads to. He says to us, listen, you can have the life that Jesus offers without the death bit. Come on, just take the life. Don't, don't worry about the death bit. He'll say things like, well, if Jesus has done it all for you, then following him should be easy and make you feel good. So do what makes you feel good and do what's easy. Things like God cares about your instant happiness. By the way, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that there's like a, I don't know, a physical, literal voice in our ears here, but he'll say this through the world or through the advice of friends or through the thoughts of our own minds and hearts. Jesus suffered for you, so you don't have to suffer. He's done it. He's done all the suffering, so there's no need for you to suffer. Don't be too serious. or too, don't, do, don't be legalistic about your faith, about discipleship. Don't start putting all these rules in place in your life, because that's legalism, isn't it? He'll say, you can have the world now if you want it, and you can come to God later. Take the world now, and God can come later. You get both that way. There's maybe many other ways that those whispers will come. But listen, Satan is the father of lies. And he will twist God's word, and he will offer a version of what God offers to us. Something that seems plausible, sounds similar, looks so enticing. But it's a shortcut, and actually, it does not lead us to the same place. Being forewarned is to be forearmed. And so we see two chief threats that Satan is going to use on you this year. Two things that he is for sure going to do to you this year to try and detract you from this path of costly discipleship. Here's what they are. The internal pressure and drive towards basically comfort. And secondly, the external pressure of shame. Look there at verses 36, 37. This is, this is comfort. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? So you can gain the whole world and yet lose your soul. You can get all the designer clothes you want. You can get every new Apple product as soon as it comes out. You can have the house of your dreams. You can have the greatest success in your career. You can become a celebrity in some way. You can tick off every single destination on your bucket list. You can do, you can have the world in any area of life and, you know, whatever. Have the most comfortable and charmed life possible in 2019 and yet forfeit your soul and so lose life. You see, what Satan has done is he has weaponized comfort and he's deployed it against Christians. We're in a culture where comfort is the highest good. It's the ultimate aim of our lives in our culture. And guys, in the church, we have bought hook, line, and sinker into that lie. We have bought into that wholesale. And it's a terrible lie. It is not true that if you have the most comfortable life, you will experience life to the full. And I think we know it. And yet, we don't seem to manage to live like it. Jesus said, you want life to the full? You want life to the full? Today, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Satan says, you want life to the full? Gain the whole world. Have it all. We've got a choice about who we listen to. It is that simple. Who can deliver for us? It's comfort. But secondly, also shame is there, I think, in verse 38. 
You see, in, in an unfaithful and a sinful world that rejects Jesus, there's going to be much pressure to conform and to fit in and to tone it down and go with the flow and, and all of this other stuff. And, and, and I know we feel it. Because following Jesus and refusing to update him to fit with our current cultural moment and stuff we hear around us, so that it suits us. If we refuse to do that, but we really will follow Jesus, it will bring us shame in 21st century Birmingham. It will bring us shame. And, and here I think we see that Satan is ultimately behind that. It's the way he's had his influence on the world and on the, on the culture around us. I don't think there's a week that goes by where I do not have some battle with this experience of shame for following Jesus and how that shapes my life. I just think it's a weekly thing. That, I mean, I don't, some of you might be different, but there's at least a point in my week, sometimes much more than that, where I'm just, I feel ashamed. And I, I probably don't even vocalize it or acknowledge it, but it's there. Well, I need to hear the call here not to be ashamed of the one who loves me and has given himself for me. Don't be ashamed of him in this sinful and adulterous generation. As Christians, our, our growth will be totally stunted if we're determined that we will not sacrifice our popularity, our credibility, our likability, our respectability, whatever else, for the sake of Jesus. If we're going to hold on to all of that stuff, well, then we're going to go away from him, basically. Are we going to be ashamed of Jesus? Or will we deny ourselves, or will we take up our cross and walk his path of shame, of exclusion, and of rejection where necessary? This, this isn't an invitation to go around being a total idiot and, you know, this isn't shame for being sinful and foolish and horrible to people or whatever else. This is shame for following him. Guys, this is the core of discipleship. This is the good news this morning. <laughs> Tough, isn't it? I guess the question that you're probably asking, the question I've been asking, a good question to ask is, why do it? What is the point? Why, why follow this path? Why follow the Jesus way? Maybe you're looking in, you're thinking, not really enticing me to want to become a Christian, actually, this morning. Well, the reason is this. There's a couple of reasons to close. Because it's following the Jesus way. And yes, that involves suffering now. Yes, that involves self-denial now. Yes, that involves the daily experience of death now. But all of that is followed by new life and glory. Eternal glory, eternal life. Now we get, actually we get some little tasters of that new life now. So actually the Christian life is one of death followed by new life. Death followed by new life in a whole host of areas and ways. That's a daily experience. And yet there's also this big picture thing where kind of, in one sense, it's kind of hard now. It's death and suffering now. In another sense, it's definitely full on glory and hope and joy later. Just think how, how different this call would be if, as you look down at, at the Bible there, you took out that little um, section 31 to 33 under heading Jesus predicts his death. So you would go from um, Peter saying, Jesus, you are the Messiah. Jesus is like, yeah, you're right. Next thing Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple, take up their cross and follow me. 
None of the stuff about Jesus being the Son of Man who has come to suffer, to die, to be rejected. Well, that would be a harsh, that would be a terrible thing, wouldn't it? That would be a leader who demands so much of us and yet will not do anything for us or not anything to help us. Much of that, that's what so much of religion looks like. It's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. But I want us to see today that Jesus is so different. He is so different. Because verses 31 to 33 are there. That was the first part of the conversation. And so Jesus goes first. He suffers many things first. He is rejected first. He dies alone first on the cross. And he then rises from the dead first to everlasting life. See, Jesus goes first. And and only then, he's kind of set the path. He's set the way. Does he call us to follow him along that path and in that way? And yes, it is a path of suffering and pain and self-denial, but it is also a path that goes to glory and goes to life. You see, that's why this is in no way like earning your way or achieving some kind of salvation or whatever else or, or doing it by your own power or your own effort. No, because he suffered and died and rose for you. And then he calls you to follow him. And that starts to frame this in a, in, in a kind of a storyline that starts to make some sense. And certainly one that has a very good ending. Listen, this, this will feel, and it will probably look like losing life. Jesus promises as much. Come and lose life. This will feel like a living death. It does. But actually, here's the promise. In that, you're gaining life. In that, you are gaining life. This is true freedom. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. That is a cast iron guarantee from Jesus. See, when the Son of Man comes on that day when he is celebrated and worshipped and adored, and that day of glory and bright day of the world being perfected and renewed, the day that heaven comes to earth, well, the promise here is that on that day, this great and mighty King, he won't be ashamed to call his disciples his friends. He won't be ashamed to stand by his followers. He won't be ashamed to share his glory and everlasting life with us. We're going to be praying uh, a little bit later. Toby's going to lead us in some prayers for um, a family in London. Um, the the mum is called uh, is called Meg, the, the dad is called Brad. I've got seven kids. Um, we'll, we'll hear a bit, bit more later perhaps, but a, a week ago everything was pretty normal for that family and, and everything was fairly standard. Um, Brad's a pastor of a church like ours in, in London. But something very instantly and very quickly happened, and so now Meg, uh, Megan is on a, a life support machine, and barring uh, an amazing miracle, she will die very soon, probably today, maybe tomorrow. One of the, her youngest child is just five days old. And I, I've been thinking about this a lot this week as we've been praying and reflecting, and um, they're, they're kind of friends of our family, and I just think, what does her life count for? 
What is the hope that her soul has as she faces death today? I mean, her, her brain stopped working, basically, but her soul's still working. So what was the hope that it has? And, and if it was you, what would it, what would it be that if you're in that position that you'd have wanted to invest your life in? What would you have wanted your life to be about and, and to have been invested in and, and, and pursuing after? Because each of us is going to come to that day, whatever it is, the, whether we get to know our death is coming or it just takes us out of the blue. Jesus says to us, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Let's pray. Lord, this uh, this 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 comes through us like a steam train. There's a, there's a, a weightiness and a heaviness to these words and to this call. There is a significance and a depth to what Jesus says to his disciples and says to us here. something that cuts across so much of our life and so much of our triviality and so much of how we spend our time and our energy and our possessions, what we daydream about, what we love in our hearts. Lord, as we feel kind of the, the weight of that conviction, Lord, I pray by your spirit you'd bring that to, to fruitfulness. I pray you bring that into faith and into godliness, into a strengthened ability by the power of your spirit to deny self, to take up cross, to follow you. Lord, would you give us a courage and not a fear? Would you give us a hope of life eternal, a joy in these things even? Would you give us an, uh, just an overwhelming and overflowing sense of Christ's love for us? Uh, uh, be amazed at the fact that he gave himself for us. The one who had done no sin, who knew no sin, the Son of Man, the Messiah, and yet he walked this path. The person who least should have walked that path of suffering and self-denial and death. We thank you for him. We thank you for what he has done for us. And Lord, we pray that you would enable and help us to live like him, to follow his way. So that on that day, that day of his return, that day of glory and light, that day of judgment, our lives will have counted for something. What we've invested in will be worth something that lasts in glory and in eternity. Lord, help us, please, not to forget these things. Embed them into our hearts and lives, we pray. Amen.